0: Welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Nadal Romero, assistant professor at NIU College of Law. And today my guest is Andrew Davies, director of research at the Deason Center for Criminal Justice Reform at SMU Dedman School of Law. And today we're going to be talking about his paper, Gideon in the Desert, an Empirical Study of Providing Counsel to Criminal Defendants in Rural Places. And this was published last year in the Maine Law Review Symposium issue addressing law and rurality. And I remember seeing him present this work at that symposium, and it's fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us today, Andy.
1: Thank you, Maybell, for your kind words. Much appreciated.
0: (laughs) So I really love the way that you frame up your your paper just to start with. You look at it as being a story about scarcity and you start with talking about the biblical story of Gideon so if you could just give an overview of that for our listeners real quick those of us who might not be super familiar with that story
1: sure I mean so I I uh I struggled for a title for this paper just because um Gideon and, uh, and the language of Gideon has been used and reused so many times, uh, in, uh, you know, law review titling of paper contexts. Um, and so if you, if you want to, you know, use the phrase, um, I don't know, justice for all or justice denied or something like that, or really justice anything or indeed anything justice, these have all been kind of used to death. Uh, and uh Gideon and Gideon's trumpet is a metaphor that's just been kind of used uh so many times as well um because uh, I, and so I was looking for like a new usage um and uh, i didn't know the story of Gideon actually and it turns out you know Gideon is the uh soldier who in the book of judges was uh told by god that his uh army uh with which he was um preparing to uh attack a city um uh, or an attack on a a a, um, a midianite camp actually um was too large and uh god was concerned that if gideon took his army which at that time was tens of thousands strong and attacked the midianite camp and defeated them soundly that um his soldiers uh would believe that it was their own very great military might that had led them to prevail over the Midianites and that it was not, in other words, God's blessings upon them which had brought them the victory. So he instructs Gideon to reduce the size of his army before beginning the attack. Um, And that's what Gideon does. He has these two slightly... um, slightly esoteric kind of tests that he puts them through first of all he just asks anybody who doesn't want to really be a part of this who's not really committed to the mission to go home and lots of them do go home and then he has another really strange test which is he goes and he takes them to uh to some water to drink and god instructs gideon that anybody who uh Uh, Cups the water in their hands to drink should be let go from the army, whereas the ones who lean down to the water and lap it with their tongues as as a dog laps should be kept. And after Gideon does these two uh, kind of tests, his army of tens of thousands is reduced to just 300 men, um, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that's what the text says. Um, And uh, at this point... um, Uh, God instructs them that what they should do is they should take torches and they should take trumpets and they should go to the camp at night. And they should, in effect, simulate an attack of a much larger army by blowing on their torches, uh, blowing on their trumpets and opening their torches. Um, And sure enough, that works. And the Midianites flee without even uh, fighting at all. Um, so this was a plan by God to make sure that Gideon and his soldiers understood that it was God bringing this victory and it wasn't their military might. Um, so the way I pivot in the paper is by saying, you know, this is really a story about scarcity. It's about making the use of very few resources. This is probably a slightly blasphemous interpretation of the text, but I certainly don't claim to be a biblical scholar. Um, (laughs) Uh, and and uh, and this is uh, uh, and so uh, it became uh, the title of the paper became Gideon in the desert, um, uh, and uh, that is also referencing this now uh, burgeoning literature on the idea of the legal desert, uh, which is really where this uh, paper is kind of having some of its intellectual roots, the legal desert being this notion that there are places in this country where there are so few laws, uh, lawyers that there is, in effect, uh, very little ability to kind of gain recourse to the law. Um, and most of that work is written in the civil legal context, uh, illustrating that because there are no lawyers, people can't get assistance with their legal questions. But in this case and in this paper... I'm looking at access to counsel for criminal defendants in rural places. And kind of um, with this reference to the idea of Gideon in the desert, trying to open the question of whether um, legal deserts also affect uh, criminal representation and whether, in other words, notwithstanding the fact that um, criminal defendants are supposed to be entitled to counsel in kind of a uniform way across the country, um, it's still the case that in rural places that right is harder to come by because these aren't legal deserts. So that's a rather long-winded explanation of the of the metaphor that I was going for there.
0: <laughs> so this paper is really remarkable, I think, because it looks at this issue of scarcity and it looks at this overview of challenges that rural counties have in providing public defense services and um, access to counsel to the indigent. Um But not all rural places are the same, and I think that's what's really special about this paper, too, in that you take an empirical approach and trying to figure out why some jurisdictions are more successful than others at following the mandate that you see coming down from the Gideon decision. So where exactly did you go looking for data in trying to, well, not just trying, but successfully, from what I see, doing this work? Where did you incorporate data from?
1: well and so that's exactly right and i i think it's i i i'm i'm so glad that you sort of noticed the diversity that sort of inhered in the in, in 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 the analysis here and and i i will uh talk about the data in a moment but it's certainly a kind of a um as an empirical piece it's very important to understand that uh while it's tempting to somehow complain that, you know, the public defense or the indigent defense system across America is fundamentally broken, um, and uh, the the kind of homogenizing effect of that sort of a narrative is, is slightly problematic for empirical work because the very important thing to be able to do empirical analyses is that we are able to compare places that have indigent defense or public defense systems that are objectively more successful Uh, more well-funded and doing a better job and compare them to those that are doing a worse job. So it's very important to be able to use data to capture uh, diversity um, in uh, public defense systems, Uh, whereas the temptation of certain critics of public defense systems is usually to kind of try and tar them all with one brush and say they're all doing a bad job. Um, These two narratives are not incompatible, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, the stress here was on sort of trying to look at associations between places that were doing better uh, versus those that were doing worse. And so the place that we went for data, we went to a lot of different places, but the most important really uh, was the Texas Indigent Defense Commission. And uh, the reason that we went there was the Texas Indian Defense Commission, or TIDC, as it's known, um, maintains what I think is uh, what I think is a unique data set across the country, and it publishes it freely on its website, um, reflecting, among other things, the number of criminal defendants. Uh, in every county in Texas, uh, which are being repre- which were represented in years past, in uh, by uh, some form of appointed counsel or public defender, uh, as a proportion of all criminal defendants. So um, every county in Texas, uh, actually for every year of the last fourteen years or so, um, has on their website. Uh, Some number, and it may be anything from zero percent to one hundred percent, reflecting referring to the fact that uh, among um, uh, criminal defendants in that county, some percentage of them are 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 are, uh, represented by some form of uh, court-appointed counsel. Uh, across the whole state in misdemeanor cases, what we found in this um, study was that for the years 2016 and 17, uh, the average was about 29% of misdemeanor defendants uh, across all of the 254 counties uh, in Texas were represented by some form of appointed counsel. But I would stress again this point of diversity, which is, yes, 29% was the average. Um, but counts, counties did go as low as zero, and they also went as high as, or very, very close to, 100% of defendants being represented by appointed counsel. So we got very, me, and I, I should mention my co-author, Alyssa Clark, who was my research analyst um, back at uh, New York uh, State Office of Indigenous Legal Services, um but we got very interested in this particular metric, because what this is telling you is, in some counties, if you're a criminal defendant in, in a misdemeanor case, and we did focus on misdemeanors, um, you the, the 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 likelihood that you'll be represented by some kind of court-appointed counsel is very high, and in some counties, it's it's close to zero, and so that just opens a question: Why is it that in some counties, uh, people are getting? access to counsel seemingly at very high rates, uh, whereas in other counties they're getting access to counsel at really vanishingly low rates.
0: So so I think many of us are familiar with the sort of Gideon-Argersinger-Scott line of cases and how they go about establishing some, you know, this, this right to counsel if you're an indigent, indigent defendant and some sort of effective assistance of counsel if you've been charged with you know most crimes at you know uh, 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 there are some qualifications on that as you know but mm-hmm. do do this line of cases do they set any real demarcation as to how states should satisfy requirements to provide defense to the indigent i mean because it sounds like you're talking about all these diverse ways that services are procured potentially and diverse ways that different counties handle them especially in texas we're we're talking about 254 different counties i believe so that's quite the undertaking that you were looking at um but there isn't any sort of hard standard out there to try to figure out okay has this county satisfied this requirement is there
1: no, there really isn't um i mean there are standards of all kinds um certainly the the court has of course uh laid out a, f- a few kind of um uh, i i would say sort of uh, perhaps um outlying contours of you know uh places into which uh indigenous defence representation should not pass and it then becomes unconstitutional. Um, but really, uh, the, the the local governments in Texas, and uh, uh, which are entrusted with kind of designing, implementing, and delivering Indian defense services, have an awful lot of discretion uh, about how they actually choose to do that. There is no, uh, you know, uh, standard out there, for example, that tells them how much they should spend on these lawyers or that they should spend anything on these lawyers. Um, there is no uh, standard out there that sort of says uh, in any definitive way uh, when a lawyer's representation must begin in a case and when it can be uh, said to be safe to end it. There's no standard out there. Well, and I should, I'm should i using the word standard a little bit loosely. There's no uh, standard that's been uh, kind of um, arrived at by the Supreme Court anyway. There are professional standards of the defense bar which are, um, sort of set certain expectations of what a, an effective Lawyer will do, um, but um, those are actually often used as cudgels to beat the uh, indigent defense um,
0: <laughs> That's so providers strange.
1: anyway, because because they so rarely seem to meet those standards of you know doing adequate investigation and knowing the law and uh, communicating with their clients effectively and promptly and so on. Um, uh, But And and systematically speaking as well, uh, in other words, to move aside from the question of whether a defense attorney provides, whether they meet standards in providing uh, services to their clients, at a more systematic level, there are also not standards for governments about, uh, for example... Um, how poor is too poor to afford a lawyer? Um, You know, the the language is in Gideon that any person too poor to afford a lawyer should be given one for free. Um, uh, But but the, the, the threshold for too poor is actually not spelled out in any kind of, a kind of very concrete way. And so governments, therefore, and in, in the case of Texas county governments, and in the case of many states, county governments, New York, my own state, is another example of this, are in the position of having to um, decide how to actually implement um, this uh, this requirement of providing counsel to everybody who's too poor to, hi- to hire a lawyer. So, so they have to put in systems, uh, or they can decide whether or not to put in systems, to determine... What poverty actually means, they have to decide what that standard actually is, and they have to decide how to people how to assess people for whether they pass that standard, and and so and that's only one example. There are a number of different decisions that go, local and state governments have to make about uh, how uh, how council. Uh, will be put in touch with clients to do the representation that the law requires. Uh, they, but they, given that those are really the, the the bare minimum requirements about what does need to happen. Um, governments are in the position of deciding: well, shall we contract with somebody, or should we bring somebody onto staff, or shall we, uh, shall we, uh, you know, fund them sufficiently that they have lots and lots of ancillary staff available to them to to investigate cases, or shall we just uh, not prioritise that? Um, so all of these kind of forms that the policy can take are are principally local government decisions. And so the question becomes, you know, why does a local government choose to make its decisions one way or another?
0: You know, you, you, you get all this data from Texas, 254 different counties. I imagine it's rather overwhelming to go through initially, and you need to find out, figure out some sort of paradigm to analyze it. So you end up assessing the access to counsel issue in Texas um, using three different Sort of methods, three different inquiries that you do. Um, the first policy, the second practice, the third dedication in funds. So, how did you decide on these three in
1: particular? Well, uh, so uh, that's a that's a nice question. I um, access to counsel in and of itself is 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 a is a concept that we had to define um so you know getting access to counsel is actually although we sort of think about it as a kind of a commonplace notion is uh, is an abstraction uh and so uh we ended up thinking about access to counsel in uh as as kind of empirically measurable in these three different ways uh there there is the matter of um, if if you are uh, in the position of a local government and deciding how shall we provide access to counsel to criminal defendants, um, one question or one answer or perhaps one metric uh, for the way you've answered that question is to just look at. How much money you've put into the public defender system uh, and if we see that as a um in a kind of a like for like for com- comparison you're putting proportionately more money in than an adjacent county, then perhaps we would conclude that you 've dedicated more resources to the issue of access to council um of course that's still a little bit um or distant from the uh, question of whether people are literally getting access to counsel. Um, So as a a point of practice, we also look at this uh, issue of um, uh, whether people are literally getting uh, assigned counsel, those percentage points that I referred to earlier, uh, which are uh, a very literal and kind of direct reflection of whether access to counsel is happening in the sense that um, uh, criminal defendants are actually being put in touch with lawyers that they are actually then using for their representation um, so that's another way that we use to measure access to counsel and then the third way is to look at policy uh, because um, because in addition to the the the, the policy of deciding uh, how much to spend on Indian event uh, services there are a number of policies that local governments can use uh to um well i'm I'm about to say something that is uh Potentially slightly partisan, uh, but 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 this is true. I think there are a number of policies that local governments can use if they wish to try to contain uh, the uh, the costs of actually providing uh, access to counsel. And one is one that I've already alluded to: It's this process of deciding how poor is too poor. If you decide that a person is only too poor to afford their own to afford their own lawyer when they are um you know let's say uh, their income is below the poverty line um then the number of people for whom you will have to provide a lawyer is presumably going to be rather lower than if you decided as a policy matter that a person is too poor to hire a lawyer even if their income is twice what the poverty line is Um, But, you know, perhaps they happen to be um, on welfare or or they have some other qualifying feature, uh, or perhaps you just think that twice the poverty line is already a low enough income, and so you're going to give that person a lawyer. Um, So as a policy matter, you are able to make these distinctions, and and we're able to track these in data. These are data that I didn't mention yet, but for every one of the 254 uh, counties in Texas, we were able to look at uh, where they set that income cutoff. Uh, for people to actually be eligible for counsel. Um, The other policy matter that we look at is um, the issue of recoupment. Um, This is a term of art, obviously, uh, but uh, it is perfectly legal in Texas and many other places, including New York, where I am, to, not, notwithstanding the fact that people who are too poor to afford counsel are supposed to be given a lawyer for free, it is still perfectly legal to charge things like application fees to people to apply for lawyers and to um, uh, and to have systems for recouping some of the costs of a person's lawyer after the case is over uh, if, uh, I don't know, they win the lottery or something like that. Um I mean I, I don't think it actually is required to win the lottery that's a rather extreme example um but that's the only way that you're going to be able to pay anything back <laughs> well yes yeah. right yeah um right right well you would think <laughs> um, you would think yeah so so these so so this is the third way that we, we approach it anyway to, to answer your question is it you know uh, the third way that we approach it is we look at these policies these policies that are clearly designed either with a view to kind of facilitating and smoothing the way to getting access to counsel or which implicitly at least uh, represent choices that could uh, impose a barrier between a defendant and the counsel that they kind of would otherwise be entitled to.
0: And that's quite the undertaking that you two went through, just trying to figure out how do we go about even defining what access to counsel is and what this looks like. So I'm going to start talking with you about access to counsel specifically in Texas and how it functions. And you start going about trying to answer this question as to whether rural areas in Texas differ in terms of access to counsel from urban ones or from each other. Um, but I have a quick question with regard to how you go about defining what rural is in your paper, because I always struggle with this whenever I write about rurality as well.
1: Yes, um, unfortunately, this is not a quick question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we do struggle with this. Um, I mean, we, we, come to a, we come to a solution in the paper, but uh, it's it, it, perhaps a borrowed solution. So I think perhaps the best way is just to explain that. Um, we obviously, um, the, the, a lot of the problem with studying rural places is that um, people just kind of have an imagined idea of what a rural place is. And uh, when you talk about kind of studying crime or justice issues in rural places, then um, a lot of images comes to people's mind. But those two are not, you know, they may not be based in reality. Um, and, and certainly the kind of the, the clear definition of what counts as rural is something that um when you're going to kind of do a uh, do a study of of rural places, you, you have to kind of come to a decision about what you mean by that. Um, and and some people uh, in their scholarship kind of choose not to come to a decision. They just kind of um, rely on a you know a multifaceted uh, uh, definition, or or they just kind of perhaps don't really settle on one, but they just sort of assume everybody agrees. Um, but it turns out that there are um, there, are several, there have been several attempts made to really define what rural is using uh, data from things like the census, but, but certainly not limited to the census. And, and we didn't use census data in the end. So, for example, if I could just go off on one tangent, the, um, the, uh, the census produces data at the county level saying how many people in a county live in an urban area. Uh, And so for any county in the country, you can say, you know, 20 percent of the people live in urban areas or something like that. The problem with that is that and and there are examples of this from um, from several states. If you're in a county that's clearly rural, I mean, it's mostly mountains or mostly farms or something like that. um, But it has a couple of small towns in it. And everybody who lives in that county lives in the small towns because if they didn't live there, they'd have to live in the mountains or something like that. Uh, What that means is that on the census metric, um, close to 100% of the people in that county will be counted as living in an urban area. And so if you rely on the census description of the county... Um, it would say that it is, you know, close to 100 percent urban, uh, when in fact what it means is 100 percent of the people in the county live in, uh, you know, a small urban area. So using that's just one example and um, not a... um, I'm not picking a particularly extreme example. It's an example of how statistics can be quite misleading about whether a place is truly urban or rural. Um, So there are a number of other attempts to kind of expand beyond what the census gives us, the census being the kind of touchdown place that we all tend to go to first. Um, And uh, uh, there have been several attempts to distinguish counties or zip codes or other geographies into those that are rural or not rural. Um, And we rely on one called the Rural Urban Continuum Codes, which organizes every single one of the United States, approximately 3,000 counties, um, into a a nine point scale. And uh, the first three points on the scale are for uh, counties that have a town over 50,000 people, and those are all counted as metropolitan. And you can be in grade one if you're over a million, you can be in grade two if you're over a quarter million, and you can be in grade three if you're over 50,000. Everything that is in grades four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are considered non-metropolitan counties, and this is the set of counties that we adopt as our set of rural counties. Um, Non-metropolitan counties obviously don't have any town over 50,000 people in them. Uh, they have, uh, you can be in four or five, you can be at grade four or five if you've got a town of 20,000, you can be a grade uh, six or seven if you've got a town of 2,500, and you can be at grades eight or nine if you don't even have any town of 2,500 people. Uh, and then it further breaks down the counties um, into the, those dyads, that four, five, six, seven, and eight, nine dyads are distinguished based on whether your county is adjacent to a metropolitan county and if more than 25% of the people in your county commute to that place to work so this we're really getting into the weeds here but i just i uh, i i just want to kind of give a sense actually of sort of the complexity of what's going on here because it's important um uh, it, you know, so for example, if if you're in uh, grade four or five, that means you can have a town of up to fifty, uh, of, of, well, up to forty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people in your county. Um, uh, if you're, it, you would be a, you would be a four if uh, more than twenty five percent of the people in your county are commuting to a really large urban center. But you'd be a five if that's not happening, um, and 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 so on down the scale. So, what's going on with this uh, scale? is that it is first dividing the counties into metro and non-metro counties, you kind of have rural and urban counties, but then it's also trying to capture further grades of sort of how metro they are in terms of how big the urban center is, and also trying to capture whether they are kind of adjacent to big cities, because you can be a a kind of a fairly rural place that's close to a big city, but it sort of fundamentally changes your economy because those people are working in different kinds of jobs than if you were completely remote from a big city. So it's trying to just kind of get the shades of rural in there a little bit more. But I want to say one last thing about this, which is that this scale and a number of the other scales which are, are you know we picked this scale because it's actually been used a lot in studies of healthcare, care um, and it's it's been shown that the the counties that are more rural on this scale tend to have a tougher job delivering health care because these are places that are you know really rural they're really remote and so we thought well legal services as close as we can tell are might be analogous to healthcare so let's say that we would guess that the really rural places on this scale will also have a, a hard time delivering legal services. Um, but, but the last and, 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 and so it proves to be but, but the last thing I want to say about it though is that um, this this still doesn't solve the question of how to define rural. What we've done here is we've relied on somebody else's definition of of, uh, a sort of a highly transferable, relatively intuitive definition of what it means to be in a rural county. And this definition of rurality has to do with, you know, how big your town is and whether you're commuting to another town. And it sort of evokes questions of distance and size and volume and and also economy. Um, And all of those things sort of relate to the idea of rural. But I would say that, you know, if 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 I could have my ideal measure here, we're trying to talk about legal deserts. We're trying to talk about the idea of not just a rural place, but we're trying to try to talk about the idea of a rural criminal justice system and a rural criminal court. Um, and so what I think this paper actually ends up doing in the in the very final analysis is starting to identify some of the features of rural criminal justice systems that correlate with this more general understanding of what rurality is. And I think that what the contribution there is, is um, it it still doesn't solve this question of, you know, what do we really call rural? I mean, we've just arrived at this typology because it was convenient and somebody else already developed it. Um, But part of the intellectual project here is actually to answer the question that you're so puzzled about, I think, which is what, how do we actually describe places that are rural in criminal justice terms? Um, and what this pri- paper is driving at partly is trying to identify those places that are struggling to provide a criminal justice system that is constitutional and properly constituted and, and stuff like that. And in the end, what we're able to do is sort of start to talk about, indeed, how those things empirically cluster. And it starts to sort of get us towards this idea that, oh, you know what, we really can identify Places that are not just rural, but they're criminal justice rural. These are places that are not just you know remote and have a lot of fields in them, but they're places where criminal justice itself is kind of sparse. and And so that's definitionally uh, like what I feel like the big prize is here. We're really starting to kind of uncover what is special and different, and in some to some extent, you know, obviously troubling uh, about these places.
0: So, what similarities or differences did you see when comparing access to justice in urban versus rural Texas counties
1: overall? When we when we compared uh access to counsel rates in urban counties and rural counties, um, we found that the rate at which criminal defendants were uh using uh, defense lawyers appointed to them by the courts was significantly, and I mean statistically significantly higher in uh, urban counties compared to rural ones. So in urban Texas counties, the rate at which misdemeanor defendants are using appointed counsel is about 39%. In rural Texas counties, it's about 25%. So whereas the state mean overall was 29%, what you see very clearly there is uh, some... Uh, is the urban counties falling above that mean and then the rural counties falling significantly below that mean. Um, So what that tells us right away is that there is something different about rural counties that is leading them to have lower levels of actual practical uh, access to counsel for criminal defendants in, in these cases.
0: So you found though that some rural counties are doing a better job at affording counsel to the indigent than others though What are characteristics of those rural counties that are better at this
1: well that that's exactly right um, and uh, the we um, in in identifying that uh, urban counties were doing better and rural counties were quote unquote doing worse uh, we recognized i think that that didn't really close the in- Query. It certainly didn't kind of conclude everything that we wanted to know. It's certainly not good enough to just say rural counties are doing worse, and then rely on some sort of assumption that well, um, uh, well. I mean, you know, Im- impose your own uh, prejudices here, right? I mean, uh, it, it, are rural places backwards, or is it simply that they're poor, or is it simply that they are? Uh, conservative or is it something else is it like they they like to solve their legal problems without using lawyers or, or something like that there are so many different kind of possibilities that are going on here and it could be and and some of them um i think from you know uh well some of them from a legal standpoint are permissible and some of them are not permissible uh some of them are kind of more morally palatable, and some of them are less morally palatable, Uh, and some of them are kind of more understandable uh, and inevitable, and some of them are more um, kind of clear policy choices. Um, So what we tried to do is next, uh, having identified that, yes, among the rural counties, there's on average... A lower rate at which people are getting access to council, we nevertheless realise, and one of the the things in the paper that I'm happiest with is we have this rather beautiful graph. Uh, I find it rather beautiful anyway. This is one of the clearest empirical findings I've ever had in my career, which is um, showing that the way, uh, not only that uh, rural counties on average have this lower rate of access to council, but actually showing the way that the rural counties are distributed. Um, across the uh, range uh, from 0% of providing access to counsel all the way up to providing access to counsel in 100% of cases. And obviously, because uh, the average is down at 25%, it's strongly skewed in that direction. But what you see when you look at the graph is that there are some rural counties way out on the right-hand side. There are some rural counties here that are providing counsel to over 80% of misdemeanants. So the question for us became, how is it the rural counties, counties in this set, which on average are doing worse in terms of access to council, how is it that some of them are in fact still succeeding? What is what is kind of distinctive about those places? Um, and so what we did next in order to uh, try and uncover the answer to that question was we, uh, we ran some regression equations. And uh, I know that people sometimes... Um, people 's eyes gloss over when we start talking about regression equations a little bit <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> that, that's that's fully understandable all All that this is is an attempt to sort out the different uh factors within rural counties which are kind of making a difference so what we do in the equations is we just focus on the one hundred and seventy two counties that are classified as non metropolitan or or rural places and and we try to compare. Uh, We collected quite a lot of other data on these counties in order to um, control for various things that we thought might be related to the rate of access to council that was obtaining those places and and then to compare them on those bases. Um, uh, So what we find in the end is, so I'll just walk through actually the results of the equation, which have to do with this particular issue of the appointment rate, which you'll remember averaged 25%, but ranged as high as 80 and as low as zero. Um, and so the question here is, what uh, leads a county um, pecked at random to be higher or lower on that number? And we thought, first of all, that it might be kind of an economic issue. So it might just be that the county has more tax levy going on um, or, uh, uh, or or something like that, and that it's therefore able to afford more Uh, public defense services and so therefore the access to council rate is higher. We found that we we controlled for that. We didn't find any relationship, so that didn't seem to be what was going on. We thought maybe that it could be to do with the median income of people in the counties because separate from the tax levy, uh, median income might be an indicator that you had a lot of poor people in the county who needed indigent defense services and so therefore perhaps your access to council service, perhaps your, your rate would be higher or lower, but we didn't find any Relationship there either. Um, We looked at caseloads, we didn't find any relationship there either. Uh, And so, these kind of economic and sort of uh, uh, just kind of administrative factors that we thought might account for why you'd have more or less access to counseling in places, they just weren't kicking. Um, But then we came to things that are much more clearly kind of um, either structural about being in a rural place or they are uh, policy choices in and of themselves. So when we look, and this is still among the rural counties, bear in mind, but when we split the rural counties into counties that have any town over 2,500 people in them uh, versus those that have no town with 2,500 people in them, we find that the the, the counties that have towns with more than 2,500 people in them are appointing counsel to people, to defendants in criminal cases, uh, roughly 13% more often than those that have no town. Uh, Then we looked at the the number of attorneys that live in the county. uh, And we find that if you have, you know, very, very few attorneys or even no attorneys living in a county, then the number of people who are getting assigned counsel in criminal cases is significantly lower than if you have a higher density of population of attorneys actually living in a county. And then the last thing that I'd really highlight is, after controlling for many, many other factors, we also found that, There are rural counties in Texas that have public defender offices. Um, The phenomenon of whether a county builds a public defender office is an independently interesting kind of thing to investigate. But we find that when a rural county in Texas has uh, a public defender office, it is uh, 11%, it, it will assign... Uh, counsel to criminal defense and misdemeanor mis- 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 cases that rates fully 11% higher. Now, bear in mind that the mean rate here is 25%. So adding 11 to 25% just by building a public defender office is a really significant increment. And then adding a further 13% uh because you happen to have a, a town locally that's over 2,500 people um, is another really significant increment. So what we're really doing with this equation is while controlling for all these economic variables that we thought might account for something we're really able to show that there are these independent effects having to do with whether there's an urban center locally whether there are lawyers living locally and whether the county has opted to build a public defender office that are uh, really strongly and significantly predictive of increases in uh, the rates of access to counsel uh, in those places, and I should note also that in this equation, we did control for other things that we thought might be going on. I, I mentioned the economic things. We also control for those those eligibility policies that that cut you off if you have uh, income twice the poverty rate, and so on and so forth. We controlled for those as well because in accounting for the rate at which people are actually getting counsel, we needed to somehow control for everything at once. We need to see, is this an economic matter or is it um, a policy matter? Because if we simply say, you know, oh, these counties are doing better than the others and we think it's because they built a public defender office, it would be very easy for a critic to come back and say, well... How do you know it's a public defender office? It could just be that they have more liberal access to council policies, or it could be that they're investing more in access to council. It could have nothing to do with that policy choice. Well, this regression equation, this regression technique, allows us to statistically control for those things and take out the effect of the eligibility policy and take out the effect of local economics. And we're still left with this really strong and significant. Uh, relationship between uh, when a county decides to build a public defender office, um, it uh, this this seeming increase uh, or this uh, certainly this kind of categorical difference, let's say, uh, and we can get into whether I want to use causal language about this or not in a minute. But this categorical difference in the the rate at which uh, places with those offices are able to provide this counsel at, at clearly higher rates.
0: Again, this is a a great cause for optimism, seeing that there are ways to improve access to counsel um, by perhaps having more institutionalized public defender service and and some other sorts of factors that we can look at in future. I certainly hope that we'll get to see more work from you and um, your co-author coming out of SMU um, in the next few years over stuff like, on stuff like this. But um, thank you for joining us and I'm looking forward to reading more of your work.
1: Thank you, Mabel. I should say one final thing, which is that we were very pleased just the other day to receive a grant from the Texas Bar Bar Foundation to continue this research. Um, In particular, what we're intending to do now is um, having established that there is a correlation between the presence of a public defender office and uh, increasing access to counsel for criminal misdemeanance. Um, we're hoping to use a much larger data set using the Texas Bar Foundation funding in order to establish whether historically the construction of public defender office has been associated with upticks in the rate of access to counsel for poor people. Um, if we can establish that, and we can establish that there's a time ordering to that relationship, then we'll be one step closer to be, being able to give very concrete policy advice to counties around Texas about how they can improve access to counsel from criminal defendants.
0: Oh my gosh, Andy, congratulations. That is great news for you and for the
1: Decent Center. Thanks for doing this work. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. This has been a great pleasure.
2: Deep desert Heavy with care you found me Now you put arms around me Making me part of you I'm finding a new world Far from my native land Buried my old world In your shifting sands Deep desert Now I know where my place is Here in your silent spaces This is my home Deep desert Island spaces. This is my home, Deep Desert.